Welcome to CityWire Selectors, Let's Talk About ESG Podcast. I'm Margarita Kirakosian, Deputy Editor, and joining me today is Nikesh Patel, Head of Investment Strategy at Kempen. Nikesh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. One of the most recent papers you really contributed to was about carbon pricing and how that carbon pricing actually will impact potentially the valuations of equities worldwide. What struck me personally is that the range of impact is from 4% to 20%, um, which is quite a big range. And I wanted to, well, firstly, to start out from the fact why carbon pricing framework does matter at the moment for investors worldwide. And secondly, what kind of impact will it have on valuations? Okay, um, so let's start with why it's important to have um, some form of carbon pricing. Um, If the world is to achieve uh, net zero, well, more importantly, if they are to be Paris aligned, that implies a certain reduction in carbon usage over that period. In order to reduce carbon, you have to encourage companies to reduce their carbon emissions. Um, And as I think we've all seen over the last 100 years, the best way to encourage a market economy to reduce carbon is to place a cost on carbon. Now, that that could be an explicit cost in the form of taxes. It could be in the form of carbon trading. But the basis of these activities is that you're essentially trying to cap the amount of carbon. In a carbon tax environment, what you're doing is trying to set a price and then companies will respond by trying to minimize their tax liabilities and therefore reduce their carbon emissions. The alternative, what we've done in Europe uh, and what we're trying to see elsewhere is you set a total volume of carbon that's acceptable and you let the market set the price for that carbon. The effect of both of these is that you create a equilibrium price eventually, which achieves the goal of reducing the amount of carbon emitted, but also uh, achieves the policy goal of reducing the total amount of carbon used um, at an acceptable price to both the companies and consumers. So that's the point of um, having a carbon price, that it encourages the right behavior and encourages in a market economy, placing an equilibrium price on on what this goal is. In terms of um, the analysis that we did, um, we tried to set out what would be the impact on um, global listed um, stocks if one were to implement a carbon price of around $75 and then a couple of more severe scenarios. Uh, So first, um, let me just outline the limitations of that analysis. It was a shock analysis. Now, in reality, Um, a carbon price increase is not going to be a sudden increase, or it's unlikely to be a sudden increase. And therefore, it wouldn't be a shock impact on equity valuations. It would likely be incurred over many years as that price builds up. Um, But in order to demonstrate the impact, we wanted to show the shock because that's important. It's an important behavioral impact to see that the impact is so large. The second impact, second, second point to note is why $75? So a few years ago, the IMF uh, conducted some analysis and they essentially set that, um, well, they determined that $75 was the appropriate equilibrium price globally to achieve the Paris goals. Now, it's been a few years actually since that analysis was done. And in those few years, the carbon price hasn't really moved. Um, To give you an example, the latest analysis shows the global average carbon price on all carbon is about $3. So we've got quite a way to go. So when we said, why shock it by $75? That's because we're essentially saying we're practically at zero. It doesn't matter whether it's $3, it's practically nothing. Um, 
In reality, however, because we've waited so long already before having a $75 price, and we're likely to have a phased increase over time, the odds are we're going to need an even higher carbon price at the end of that journey in order to again achieve the Paris goals, and even higher if you want to achieve the Paris goals sooner than 2050. So that's why we also modeled a $150 shock, as well as um, well, the, implied, the implied for, for an even larger one. Um, one final point to note in the analysis, we did scope one and two, and we did scope three in addition. Now, there's a huge gap in the results between scopes one and two and scope three. Um, and that's partly to do with the definitions of the scopes. So scope one is um, things like um, the transportation of um, uh, your goods and services. So, you know, fuel combustion, uh, the petrol usage of getting your equipment from A to B and, and, and the Getting it to uh, getting it to point of sale. Scope two is the purchased electricity, um, the energy used to produce your product. So those two are much more in the direct control of these companies. Scope three is the um, uh, the larger usage of that good. So it could be, for example, business travel. It could be the use of refined goods in another business the use of those sold products, it could be waste disposal, um, it could be investment activity uh, by those companies in, that, in their treasury books. So scope three really encapsulates um, a wider brief than just the direct consumption in order to produce the business good that uh, scope one and scope two represent. Because of that, scope three is simply wider in its scope. It encapsulates not just the business's usage, but for example, the consumer's use of that product. And so scope three is, is really a, an attempt at an all-encompassing figure. Um, there is some uncertainty whether uh, global regulatory systems will include scope three as well as scopes one and two in the same, uh, in the same system. And that's because, you know, who do you charge for scope three? Is it the consumer who's using it or the business that's consuming a, a second good? Or is it the original producer? Um, it will vary. Ultimately, though, someone will bear that cost. If we're to achieve the Paris goals, it needs to be taxed or priced in some way, whether it's priced at the company level um, as part of their carbon pricing or at the consumer level is yet to be determined. Mm -hmm. So imagine that we reach $75 uh, per ton of CO2 emissions. How does it impact, the, for example, a hypothetical global equity portfolio? Um, so let's say we reach there in a shock what you'll see is that um, more carbon intensive companies will find that their valuations have dropped because the cost of their doing business either by purchasing carbon credits or paying carbon taxes is higher and therefore their profitability will be lower so from a total portfolio perspective the higher the carbon uh, price goes um, what you should see is if those companies take no mitigating actions the valuations of those companies will fall now that's a really big positive, actually, because knowing that the cost will increase, those companies should be incentivized to change their behaviors. And so what you're doing by encouraging a higher carbon price is encouraging those companies to transition to a less carbon intensive future, which, of course, is the whole point. Um, so if they transition to a, a lower carbon intensity, then they'll have to pay less in carbon taxes or buy less in carbon credits. Uh, both of which will preserve their income and therefore preserve their valuations. So the idea here is that um, it encourages the right behavior to encourage a transition to a lower carbon future. It doesn't explicitly get us there, but it encourages the market to get them there. Mm -hmm. 
what I also found interesting in your research, when you look at the impact and kind of like compare, for example, European equities versus European ESG screened equities, actually the negative impact on the former is much more severe than for ESG screened equities, for example. So why do you think that is kind of like, how did you derive at that result? And what is the difference, for example, between just playing European equities at ESG screened equities in that regard? Sure. So um, there's no great mystery to the analysis, I should say. It's a relatively simplistic approach. We took uh, a range of sustainable indices um, and we compared them to the broad market capitalization index. And generally what you find in the uh, more sustainable indices, um, one feature among many is that they have a lower carbon intensity. And that's because they tend to underweight um, high carbon industries, particularly the oil and gas sector. Uh, by being underweight in those areas, naturally, you're reducing your scope one, two, and three emissions in those sustainable indices. So it's really just a reflection that those sustainable indices have a lower carbon intensity by design. Um, I actually thought the interesting part of the analysis was that the sustainable indices still suffer a negative outcome. Mm -hmm. That even though they're labeled sustainable and they have lower carbon intensity, that's not enough you still suffer a negative result. And I think that's the key point of the analysis that it's not enough to stop at being sustainable. If you want to really be neutral or even positive, you have to do something different than just investing in sustainable indices or in sustainable active managers. Mm -hmm. So what is actually needed in that regard? If just sustainable framework isn't enough or investing in sustainable indices is not enough, what do you need to do then? So there, there are two um, there are two ways to go about it in the I guess the core and then one additional approach which I would say is more opportunistic. So in the core, the two things you can do is you can invest in the transition itself. So over the next ten to fifteen years, if you imagine all of these companies that are going to have to reduce their carbon intensity, they're going to have to invest in new technologies. They're going to have to invest in new ways of doing business that will reduce their carbon intensity. As an investor, you can try to select those companies that are transitioning well or ahead of their peers, and those companies can therefore outperform. Not only that, but if they can get ahead of the transition, they may, may even be selling carbon credits to other participants in the, uh, in the stock universe. So investing in the carbon transition is one. The second is to invest in uh, parts of the economy that will benefit from um, the end of the transition. So think about things like clean energy, think about things like farmland and agriculture and timber. These markets and these um, areas of the investment universe will benefit from, well, either scenario of we meet the goals or even if we don't meet the goals. Either way, these areas will benefit. Um, we, of course, we hope they benefit because we meet the goals. Um, so that's another core thing you can do. Now, the more opportunistic thing you can do is also invest in emerging technology. So um, the, the greatest of those is probably carbon capture technology. Now, that is much more of a, uh, a venture capitalist technology play. Um, and therefore, it shouldn't be a significant part of your portfolio. But if you really wanted to take part in sort of the, the, the energy solution, that could be a way to do it. Mm -hmm. And with carbon capture, I know that there are uh, a lot of energy, big energy players that are going into that technology, and they are pretty much dominant in that specific segment, even though you would imagine this is something that renewable companies would be focusing more on. Um, there are also new players, obviously, in the market. So do you think that will be monopolized by big energy names, or there are still ways for new companies to make their impact in carbon capture space? 
I, I think it's I think it's both. Um, so that's a very it's a very terrible answer to sit on the fence, but I, I do think it's both for two different reasons. Um, for new companies, there's always the ability to innovate and to come up with a new idea um, and then to sell this technology to, well, to whoever will buy it. And there are many, many buyers, as we know, around the world. Um, however, the biggest buyers um, and the biggest, um, I suppose, R&D spend will always come from the existing largest emitters. So if these emitters know that there is a carbon price of some sort coming, as part of their own business planning, they need to invest in any technologies that will reduce their carbon footprints. And that could be changing their business model or it could be carbon capture. So it makes sense that they remain the largest, um, the largest spenders in this space. Um, but as with any new technology, it doesn't necessarily follow that just because they're spending the most money that they will create the best technology. Um, there's also a matter of, uh, will they go far enough? Um, so for them, it's a matter of uh, not changing their core business behavior by having a carbon capture technology added on, right? They can continue producing as much carbon as they were before, but now they've got this additional te technology capturing the carbon. The ideal, of course, would be that they, they create an, an, a different way to do business that still achieves the consumer goal um, and their profit goal, but without creating the carbon in the first place. Um, that's, of course, where we want to, where we want to get to. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned uh, focusing on the transition candidates. I think one big challenge there is to actually realize and work out which companies are genuinely dedicated to it and who are just paying lip service basically to the whole idea. So from your perspective or from Campin's perspective, how are you tracking that down? Like, is there a reliable, robust way to actually define those transition candidates? So it really depends on engagement with the management of those companies. There are, of course, lots of data points and metrics um, that you can use to try and get a proxy for it. But really, what you're trying to capture is management intent. Is the management of this company transition aligned? Are they remunerated um, to encourage the transition? Are they participating with, in, uh, with investors? Are they participating with industry initiatives? Are they taking part in the transition, um, not just for their own sake, but for uh, for other for their sector, for their employees, for their stakeholders? Um, now, a great example of uh, of work that's been done here is the Transition Pathway Initiative, um, which has now been turned into an index. That's a fantastic way for lots of investors to participate with, I think, a robust framework of engagement, without necessarily having to put the work in themselves on engaging with those companies. Now, really interesting um, scoring there would be that certain companies that you might not expect to be part of that um, index score quite well, people like Shell, and that's because they do engage and they do have a plan to transition away from carbon intensive activities. And other companies which you might ex expect to score very well actually score quite poorly. So think of someone like Tesla. You know, you imagine that they would be part of the solution, but actually in this index from a management uh, intent and a management engagement perspective, they are very poor. They don't really engage with shareholders and they do quite silly things like buying Bitcoin, which is a terribly negative uh, carbon activity. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that you would exclude, for example, electric car manufacturers per se. It does depend on just the responsiveness of the management, I guess. Absolutely. So if you can include a shell because they are engaging, then absolutely you can include anyone that is engaging and is aware of what they need to accomplish and by when. Um, I think the people that you exclude, and exclusion is the last resort, is where they fail to engage um, and they fail to meaningfully address their carbon intensity or they fail to meaningfully 
um, align with their investors' beliefs on those issues. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned as well the thematic approach, basically, to this kind of like focus of yours on kind of like climate positive portfolios. So that is being farmland equities, for example, and then renewable energy, climate solutions, basically. Um, so how can investors approach that side of the equation? And then probably the second question here is, would there be any areas of crowding as a result of that if everyone decides waking up tomorrow we are going to invest in all those areas that mitigate climate change let's say i, I think that's a really great question um so first of all um how do you approach the how do you approach it thematically um the first thing is to note time horizon this is the single most important thing when it comes to not just uh, climate change but on, on a host of esg issues it's the time horizon of the investor now um i predominantly deal with db pension funds and dc pension funds DB pension funds, final salary pension funds, are very, very large investors, very large pots of money. However, their time horizons are a lot shorter than, than most people believe. You know, a lot of people think that these funds are going to be around for 100 years, and some of them may well be, but they're not going to be investing in equities for 100 years. That They are on a de-risking path, and therefore, if they're de-risking from equities over the next three, four, or five years, should you really be investing in a theme that's going to take 10 or 15 years to play out? So for those investors, it almost doesn't matter um, whether they're going to invest in, in, in the climate transition or not. They simply have to reduce their equity exposure. So that's one. Um, so for those for those investors with shorter time horizons, investing thematically isn't appropriate, actually. They, they ought not to do it. The second question is, are we creating bubbles? Um, and the short answer is yes. Uh, you're creating bubbles where investors are implementing something in a less than ideal way. So if you take... Um, if you take farmland, actually, as a great example, um, it's one of the asset classes that we think is, is particularly positive from, 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 uh, from these areas. Actually, positive both in a, in a climate positive scenario, but also positive in a climate negative scenario. We're going to need more food for our population. Um, if you invest only in listed farmland equities and that became your focus, you are creating a bubble. And that's because there, aren't, there are simply not enough farms in these uh, listed vehicles to accumulate this much money. So if you if you keep on putting flow into those uh, into those ETFs or into those companies, you're creating a bubble in those companies and those farms and those particular uh, underlying assets. So the way that we do this is to look beyond listed and unlisted. Um, we tend to look at the entire space and say, is that bit of land, that bit of that farm in that portfolio worth? what the implied value of that, that listed price is? Or is it better if we simply buy the underlying asset directly on a non-listed basis? And therefore, of course, you get it at, a, at its proper value, not at its inflated value. And that's really important. Now, for institutional investors, they can do that. They can access most asset classes in both their listed and unlisted form. And they can access most assets with a view on its intrinsic, intrinsic value, not just its current value. For investors who are limited to only the listed markets, they have to be much more wary and they have to really be aware that they could be buying into a bubble simply because there's not a, an available amount of supply. And that applies to farmland, it applies to a lot of property sectors, it applies to clean energy, it applies to a lot of very specific themes that whilst you would want to be exposed to them, um, you have to understand that the underlying assets are of a, of a fixed and finite nature the fact that you're putting money into them is driving the price, not the activity that they're undertaking. 
Mm -hmm. And can you safeguard investors in any way, especially those who are kind of like only allowed to invest in listed equities or have access to listed equities only? Is there a way to introduce either caps on investing in clean energy, for example, or there is like a golden number of like don't invest more than five to 10 percent of your portfolio into clean energy stocks, let's say? Well, I wouldn't say there's a golden number, but there is a golden rule, which is diversify. So if you're if you're trying to invest in the climate transition as a whole, diversify across what that means. That's not just clean energy. It could be sustainable food. It could be uh, healthcare. It could be air. It could be uh, core clean energy versus uh, some of the more uh, venture and new technologies. Yeah, diversify across the transition. Um, and then, of course, diversify against the transition. Um, whilst we hope, we all hope, that the climate transition is successful and that we successfully prevent a two degree rise as a long term investor, you should also be thinking about well, what if we fail? Um, what if that technology fails and therefore diversify against yourself as an investor being wrong, invest in things that will do well in the event that um, these clean energy technologies do not succeed. Um, one of the other things you can also do is invest in um, a multi strategy. Uh, approach a multi-strategy fund or a multi-sector fund. So rather than an individual investor having to take a call on either an individual stock in clean energy or an individual clean energy fund, they could try to invest in uh, a climate-aware multi-strategy fund. And there are many of these now in existence um, who will who will then diversify on their behalf across a range of sectors uh, and asset classes and will engage also, which is important. Uh, you know, with climate, I mentioned it earlier. It's all about engaging with the management of these companies. It's very difficult, of course, for an individual, uh, an individual person or an individual person investing in listed funds to have that kind of direct engagement. Spoke at length about carbon pricing and the impact it might have uh, on global equity valuations. Uh, one question I have, if we are to reach, for example, $75 um, benchmark, so who is in charge of setting it? Because obviously from my perspective, it's governments, but then don't we have any global standard? And if we don't, how can we get there? Yeah, so I think um, there are there are actually two, two parties that set the price. So if it's a carbon tax environment, then the government sets the price. If it's a carbon trading environment, then actually the market sets the price, the government sets the supply. But in the event the, the government sets the price, the market will reach a supply balance that it's happy with. In the event that the government sets the supply, the market will set the price that it's happy with. Um, so actually, it's it's not unfortunately as simple as saying who sets the price. Um, it either has to be setting the supply or setting the price, but not both. Um, now, in order to reach seventy-five dollars, um, the simplest approach would be a carbon tax. But I think a carbon tax, it's a blunt instrument. Um, it also raises concerns about what is what is done with that tax. Where does the tax spent? Who does it go to? Um, you know, what is it being used for? If you set the supply, I think it is a healthier environment. I think it encourages the market to set an appropriate price. And the government can also phase the supply down over time to encourage one, a phased increase in price, but also a phased transition of not just the economy and not just these companies, but also a consumer behavior. And it's really important that it is a change in consumer behavior because unless consumer behavior changes, companies won't change because they have a certain business model and therefore the carbon emissions won't change. Um, so it's 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 
it's twofold that, ha that this has to happen at the same time. Both supply and the price have to have to go in conjunction. Mm -hmm. And there was an implication that, for example, at COP26, we might get some kind of standard on global carbon pricing. So is that the event when we have people coming together and deciding this is how it's going to work, or it might take a bit longer than that? So if I was, being, if I was a real optimist, and I'm not, but if I, if, I was a, if I was an optimist, I would say the ideal outcome from COP26 is that, first of all, they are all open about what has been achieved so far. And, you know, it's fantastic that we now have so many emission trading systems and carbon prices around the world, but we have to recognize the fact that it covers a very small amount of emissions. So, first of all, I would like there to be recognition that the global average carbon price on total emissions is very, very small. It's so small, it's practically nothing. The second thing is to recognize everyone that we need to get to $75 or more in order to achieve this. And third, that there is a time frame over which to achieve that. Now, whether that is achieved through a carbon tax or a, uh, or a carbon trading system, I actually don't think it, it matters. I think both of them will, will get us there. I think the uh, trading system will be more healthy to get us there, but both of them will get us there. And to set a time frame to get to that $75 target. If they can achieve that at COP26, it will be a huge step forward. Um, but then, of course, we are, realm, we are sort of going into the realm of politics and um, it's much more difficult to predict politics than it is to predict, let's say, the science of, uh, of climate change or indeed the economics of what is the equilibrium price. Nikesh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. Hope it was interesting.